0: Psalm 24 this evening. There are notes that I prepared and I left there on the table in the foyer. However, there's no screen, presentation, PowerPoint for you to follow. And so just with your Bible and a pen, um, I would invite you to, to turn with me to Psalm 24. It was on April 19th, 1995. I was a Bible college student And I remember that occasion when Timothy McVeigh killed 168 people in his Oklahoma City bombing. And many of you recall that horrific occasion. Before Timothy McVeigh's federal execution for the crime in June of 2001, McVeigh gave a handwritten statement to the warden, quoting a section from the poem Invictus, which is Latin for unconquered, If you got a copy of the notes I prepared, I've got that poem printed for you there. It's it's from the 19th century poet, British poet William Ernest Henley and it concludes with the famous line perhaps that all of you have heard, I am the master of my fate I am the captain of my soul. Here's how the poem reads. Out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole speaks of the desolation at the center of the earth. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, as if he were caught in the talons of a bird of prey, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. That's the unknown of life after death. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gates. Of course we know what Jesus said in Matthew 7 that the way of of salvation is narrow. Straight is the gate that leads to salvation. It matters not how straight the gate How charged with punishments, the scroll. Think of the scroll in the book of Revelation, the judgments that are part of that. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And those lines reflect the philosophy, the life philosophy of Timothy McVeigh, and he sought to be the master of his fate. The irony, of course, is that he spent the last years of his life in prison, and his death was orchestrated by others, he was not the master of his fate. Was he the captain of his own soul? Well, in a letter written the day before his death, he wrote that if there was an afterlife, he would, and and here's the quote, he would improvise, adapt, and overcome. Of course, Timothy McVeigh was portrayed as an animal, a mindless, heartless monster who referred to the children killed in his blast as collateral damage. And yet the attitudes expressed in in that poem and in Timothy McVeigh's final hour are are attitudes not only of a serial killer, but could also be attitudes of of every human heart. You see, those attitudes can be seen in, in the cute headstrong toddler who rejects his mother's command. It can be seen in the self-wise teenager who casts aside her father's wisdom. It can be seen in the student choosing to disregard God's word or it can be seen in the adulterer who loves self and sin more than his savior. And I suppose that many have vainly imagined that they are the masters of their own fates, the captains of their own soul. And yet this is what Psalm 24 speaks to. I'd like us to look at it if you look at Psalm 24 beginning in verse number 1. The earth is the Lord, Yahweh's. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend Excuse me, my pages are sticking together. I'll, I'll just conclude there, verse number two at this point. David begins the psalm with just a, a fundamental declaration of of creation. And I would put it this way for you in your notes. God orders creation. Verses one and two. God orders creation. And just as this psalm begins this way, we must begin at this point. We must begin with the message of our lives with a, a recognition that God has ordered creation and to neglect that, that God has created all that is, that God has created us, is to deny that we exist only by his power and permission. Psalm 100 verse 3, we, we read it this morning, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. And one of the reasons that we or the world rejects the notion of a creator is because of the accountability that would follow. If God created all that is, if God has ordered creation, then we are accountable to Him. Turn with me quickly to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 in your New Testaments. Romans 1 presents a terrifying digression of the depravity of man. And I want us to note where it begins and how it concludes. And I'd like to read an extended portion of Romans 1. You're familiar with this passage. But follow as I read beginning in Romans 1, verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. How so? Verse 20, this is where it begins. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. There is a denial of Yahweh as the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, Verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And folks, the progression is terrifying. And the conclusion is devastating. And it all begins with man's rejection of God as creator in verses 19 and through, through 21, as we just read. It concludes with man's denial of his accountability to the righteous judgment of God in verse number 32. Although they knew their creator in verse 21, they knew of their accountability to him in verse 32. They declared themselves to be masters of their own fate and to be captains of their own souls. So we could write the United States of America all over Romans chapter one. And we could pontificate all day long about the reasons for the decline and the demise of our country and our our culture. But I declare to you that it began with a denial of God as creator. God orders creation. Turn back to Psalm 24. Many of the the creeds and the, the confessions, even the catechisms, um, that, that have been developed by the church over the centuries have often begun with, with something like this, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. That's like the beginning, the baseline, the foundation, and if we miss that starting point that God orders creation, we miss our accountability to a creator and we foolishly dis- Um, declare ourselves to be masters of our fate and captains of our soul. Now, we don't do it so eloquently as the poet. Rather, we frame it in, in terms like these. It's my life. I can do what I want. Or it's my body. I can do what I want. We say, I won't get hurt. I can handle it. I know what I'm doing. Get out of my way. We say, I don't need God. What has he ever done for me? I'll tell you what he's done for you. He created you. (laughs) That's where it begins. Colossians chapter 1, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And if God orders all creation, we must consider how he orders our lives as well. And to many that's an unwelcome imposition. We don't like accountability, and we think being in control is far superior to submitting to the one who has designed us. I remember many years ago counseling a young woman regarding some choices in her life, and I reminded her of two things. One is the natural consequences of her choices, and secondly, the divine consequences of her choices. Teenage girl, and she replied to me, answering each of those, to the first, to the natural consequences, she, she answered, I can handle that. To the second, to the divine accountability or divine consequences, she answered, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Not so unlike the poem Invictus, not so unlike Timothy McVeigh If God orders all creation, we accept his control over our lives and our accountability to him. Back in Psalm 24, look with me now at verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of Yahweh or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. Number one, God orders creation. Number two, God orders fellowship. He orders fellowship. And just as God exercises dominion over creation, he has expected demands for fellowship with his creation. The hands must be clean. The heart must be pure. The worship must be correct. correct. The tongue must be true. And this psalm was used as part of the liturgy by those ascending up to Jerusalem for worship and fellowship with God in the temple. But turn quickly to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. Psalm 15, a a companion psalm or a a parallel psalm. Psalm 15. Follow as I read to psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Who may have fellowship and companionship and relationship with you? Verse 2. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And I would submit to you that this list here in Psalm 15 leaves us bloodied and bowed before the Lord. Like the publican in Luke 18 who smote his breast. He would not so much lift up his eyes into heaven but said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So how can anyone with the poet say, my head is bloody but unbowed? Back to Psalm 24. God orders fellowship. Fellowship. And how can we have true fellowship with God? A bit of background here to the Psalm, Psalm 24 will, will help us answer the question and if you'll look, allow me to read verses 7 through 10 and I'll give you this background. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up you everlasting doors and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates lift up you everlasting doors and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Scholars generally agree that ascending the hill in verse 3, the necessity for purity in verse 4, the calling of the gates to be opened here in verses 7-10 through 10, probably refer to the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle in Jerusalem for the first time during King David's reign. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 6. Of course, we know the, the Ark of the Covenant to be that wooden box that was covered in gold, three and a half feet long, two and a half feet tall, two and a half feet wide, and it housed the two tablets of, of, um, of the law, a jar of manna, Aaron's staff. But it was more than a storage box of, of memories or mementos. It was a symbol of God's presence and God's power among God's people. And for years, the Ark had been neglected in Israel. You'll remember that during King Saul's reign, the ark was captured in battle by the Philistines, and Israel foolishly uh, thought it would guarantee success, but it did not. And The Philistines captured that ark as a trophy of war, and then plagues swept through their land, so they returned um, the, the booty, fearing for their lives, but when Israel got it back, the, the ark that is, they, they moved it to the village of Beshemesh. Where 70 men from the village were curious, they opened the lid and were struck dead. And understandably, then the ark lay neglected for 20 years, until King David and King David de- desired to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful place. But his first attempt was met with disaster because he treated it like a piece of furniture, and he prepared to move it on an ox cart and uh, it became unstable and you remember a man named Uzzah reached out to steady the, the ark and he was um, immediately, he died on the spot. And so with some of this background we can understand the weight of the question before us here in this psalm and in verse 3. The question is how can we be worthy of fellowship with God and and how can we, we en- enjoy this companionship with God and The details listed are then impossible, and it seems like we would never be able to earn fellowship with God. But, verses 5 and 6, I skipped those verses, they assure us that it's not what we do that makes God pleased, but it's what God does to declare us acceptable. Look at verses 5 and 6. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. And so, in ordering all of creation, that was verses one and two, God orders all of creation for fellowship with him. That was number two, to ultimately bring him glory. And we heard of that even in the testimony of this evening. Number three is God orders all for his glory, God orders all creation. God orders fellowship, and God orders all for his glory. There in verses 7 through 10, if you can picture the Ark of the Covenant coming back into its rightful place for the glory of God. When William was only 12 years old, he developed tub- tubercular arthritis a disease of the bone in a day and age when cures could be worse than the disease. His affected foot, treated by crude methods, had to be amputated directly below the knee. Worst yet, physicians announced the only way to save his life was to amputate the other also, but he fought them unwilling to lose another leg. He spent years in the hospital suffering, tormented, and it was while lying in his hospital bed that he penned the words of the poem Invictus. It's there before you. William Henley would not be broken by his disability. And at first we applaud his fortitude against such difficult odds And but as it was his misdirected anger burned to bitter hatred toward God. He refused to believe The God who created him was his only hope for redeeming him. So Henley, like McVeigh, refused to bow his bloodied head. Folks, someday our bloodied heads and our bloodied knees will bow. For we are not invictus. We are not invincible. No one is invincible. And no one will stand before the Lord without bowing. Ironically, there is one unconquerable soul who bowed his bloodied head for us. He's the one who demands clean hands and a pure heart so that we might have fellowship with God. And whether now or later every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, the Father. On the back of your notes, I've copied another poem. It's written by a woman named Dorothy Day, who has written this poem titled, My Captain, and it serves as a Christian response to Henley's Invictus. So follow along by reading what is printed before you and, and listen to me read the Christian alternative. Perhaps you can turn your page back and forth, or perhaps you follow the words on the front of the page and listen to this Christian alternative. Out of the night that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his, the sway of circumstance... I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under that rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, despite the menace of the years, keeps and shall keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for creating us, ordaining all of creation, for ordering fellowship with you through Jesus Christ, and ultimately arranging and ordering all things for your ultimate glory God, we bow our heads and we bend our knees and we declare you to be the captain of our soul, the master of our fate. We surrender all to you. I thank you, Lord, for the obedience of these this evening that have testified that they have surrendered to follow you. May that be all of our testimony this evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.